0: Amen. Well, this morning we've come to the end of Second Peter. And indeed, we're finishing not only Second Peter today, but also our series on First and Second Peter. And as we come to the end of this book, it's good to be reminded that these are Peter's last words recorded in Scripture for us. And so it's fitting that as Peter continues to talk about the end of all things, it's also the end of his witness in Scripture to us. And as we've heard from Pastor Alex last week, Peter is talking about the end of history, the end of skepticism, and the end of providence. Not in some complete annihilation of the earth, but rather in a cataclysmic renewal by fire. And so today we're going to see from the very first to the last verse that because the day of the Lord will come, we must live faithfully now. And so to our young worshipers, if you're with us this morning, you're going to see that in this passage, God has promised us something. He's promised us something that we're waiting for. So, my question to you, young worshipers, is what are we waiting for? What has God promised to us? And now, hear now the word of the Lord from 2 Peter 3 11 through 18. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved? and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you've given to us so that we might know you, that we might see you. And Lord, as we come to it this morning, help us to see you more clearly and love you more dearly. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. In the past month or so, I've noticed a strange phenomenon every time I've stepped out of my apartment or gone walking in our neighborhood. And you might have seen it as well. The squirrels are frantically preparing for winter. Has anybody else seen this? Right? They're scurrying here and there, trying to get acorns or other nuts or seeds, trying to gather them for the winter. And it struck the other day as I saw it that you know, their future affects their life now. Right? They're preparing for the time to come. But here's the thing, without a future plan, right, then they're going to be found wanting in the future. For example, if they don't gather, if they don't do these things now, then when the winter comes, they're going to be found wanting. And yet on the other hand, on the other hand, if there really is no, if they really don't prepare, sorry, excuse me, if there is no future, right, then all the preparation now is useless. All the preparation now is pointless. There must be both a future hope and a present preparation, and their future hope has present implications. And that's true for squirrels, but that's true for all of us, for all of humanity. And the idea is even more important when we come to the end of Second Peter. As I've said this morning, because the day of the Lord will come, we must live faithfully now. And we actually find ourselves almost in the exact same position as the first readers of 2 Peter, because we're also waiting for the end. It hasn't come yet. So just like them, we're waiting. But you see, there's a lot of us out here today, and we might come to this passage in different ways and have different ways that we often process through what the end of the world means and doesn't mean. So maybe you're somebody that lives faithfully now, but it's hard for you to hope in the end of the world. It's hard for you to hope in the future. Maybe due to the state of the world, maybe due to what your Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of this past week has looked like, Right? maybe it's hard for you to hope because others have hurt you. Maybe you say to yourself, if I don't do this, it's never going to get done. That's often where I find myself, right? Find myself trying to live faithfully now, but not necessarily in light of any real, tangible future hope. But maybe that's not you. Maybe, on the other hand, you find it easy to hope in the future, but actually find it hard to live faithfully now. Maybe you feel inclined to, if the Lord is coming, say, he is going to come, so I can just sit back and wait, right? Or maybe you think that if I try to live faithfully, I'm just going to mess things up. I just can't do it right. Maybe we often think that our work in the world, the things that we do, our service, is ultimately meaningless in God's eternal kingdom. Or maybe you're somebody out there this morning that doesn't believe. You don't either believe what the Bible says about the coming day of the Lord, or you don't believe what the Bible says about what it means to live faithfully in this present life. And maybe you're one of these three People all, you know, every day, maybe it switches based on the day. Maybe you're faithful one day and it's hard to hope the next. Wherever you are, we all need to hear that because the day of the Lord will come, we must live faithfully now. And so first, we see this whole passage framed by this idea. Look in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? It's framed from first to last in this passage by these ideas. So first we start with the coming day of the Lord. We see this especially in our passage in verses 11 through 13. Now as we've seen last week and the weeks before, Peter's been speaking about this coming day and he continues the ideas that he's already began. He's continuing the idea of cataclysmic events leading to the end of the world. Verse 11a, we see this idea again of dissolution, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. In the second half of verse 12, we see the idea of fire, of the melting of the heavens and the heavenly bodies, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And so the idea of trial by fire is here in this passage. As we heard from Alex last week, it's not new in the Bible. It actually occurs in the Old Testament. It occurs in Malachi. And if you're listening this morning to our passage in Isaiah, it occurs then too. Trial and renewal by fire. But it actually also occurs even in 1 Peter chapter 1 where he talks about the fiery trials of this life for Christians that bring us renewal, that actually bring us bring us to more holiness. And so clearly the whole Bible talks about renewal this way. But there is something new in what Peter says here at the beginning of verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Now we sometimes pass over that, but what does it mean? Well, clearly we know in the Bible that the Father knows the day or the hour, and no one knows the day or the hour except for him. But yet somehow we hasten that day by how we live now. It's somewhat of a mystery, right? The divine sovereignty of God knowing the day or the hour, but yet in his faithfulness to us, allowing us to hasten it somehow by the things that we do. Right? The Bible, when it talks about divine, responsi- or divine sovereignty and human responsibility, always puts those together. They're never separate. And here's the same way. We somehow hasten this coming day by how we live now. And that's how we make sense of clauses in the Lord's Prayer, like your kingdom come. That's how we make sense of the end of our service, saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Right? But what are we hastening? If we're just hastening judgment, maybe we'd rather not hasten that. And as one of my seminary professors always liked to say, he said, for God's people, judgment is never the end of the story. For God's people, judgment is never the end of the story. And you young worshipers this morning, this is where God's promise comes in, what we're waiting for, verse 13. But according to his, God's promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Not just new, but where righteousness dwells. Where all that is good, holy, right, true, just, and beautiful calls home. This is so hard for us to comprehend what it might look like. But let me give you a a little story that illustrates this. And I love going back to the story and just thinking about its implications. There's, There's a young boy and he's eating a pear one day. And it's very good and ripe and he's enjoying it. And so he's thinking to himself and he asks his mom, he says, Mom, will there be pears in heaven? So she thinks about it, and she she takes some time, and she responds and says, if they're not there, there will be something better. If they're not there, there will be something better. And that's the idea, right? This is the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And we see in Revelation visions of what this might look like, a people from every tribe, person, nation, and tongue worshiping God together, where God's going to wipe away every tear, Where death will be no more. There will be not mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. But you see, you don't get to this home of righteousness without the former things passing away. That has to happen. And that's where this refining fire comes in. And you can't take away judgment without taking away hope. Herman Bavink, a theologian, puts it this way he says, people have so long been conducting the argument against the Christian doctrines of death and of the grave and of judgment and of punishment, and have so long delighted in the disappearance of these doctrines, that they forgot to ask the question of whether with the extinction of these, the hope of an eternal life and of an everlasting blessedness did not also fall away. With the same knife that was used to cut away all fear from out of the heart of man, all hope was also cut." Away. And so in 2 Peter, indeed, the whole Bible is clear this day of the Lord is coming. And in God's mysterious providence, somehow we hasten it by how we live now. And as I've spent time in this passage looking over and over, a question that strikes me is what am I actually living in light of? Am I living, are we living in light of the day of the Lord? What am I most hastening? I invite you to ask the same question. Maybe we've been living in light of our next promotion our next position at a job. Maybe we've been hastening our retirement, our next vacation, our next holiday, our next trip, our, our next weekend. Maybe even the next time we get a few extra hours on our phone or on our computer. What are we hastening? And all too often, it's not the day of the Lord. To put it another way, what future event, if you knew the outcome, would most affect your life now? If you knew what specific stocks were going to go up over the next week, you would invest. If you knew where the accidents were going to be on your way to work tomorrow, you would avoid them. If you knew what friends were going to hurt you, you would leave them behind. If you knew where your future spouse was, you would go find them immediately. But we don't know these things. We don't know those future events. And yet we do know the day of the Lord is coming. And so we must live faithfully now. And so what does it look like to live faithfully now? That's our second point this morning. This is verses 14 through 18. And so what exactly do we do to live in lives of, lives of holiness and godliness, as he says in, in uh, verse 11? And actually, he gives us four commands, four imperatives, things that we do. So first, v- verse 14, be diligent. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. We were diligent. We need to be eager. We need to be zealous. And we need to be zealous to be found. Now, this is actually the same verb, the same word as to be found back in verse 10, right? The earth and the works on it will be exposed, will be found. It's the same thing, right? We need to be diligent so that we're found well, right? How do we want to be found? He says two things. First, without spot or blemish. Now, this has something to do with our unity in Christ, and I'll talk about it in a bit, but it's also about our personal integrity, our moral character, the way that we live. But also, it's about our church community. If you remember from chapter 2 of Second of Peter, it talked about the blemishes and blots that false teachers are on Christian community. So he's also saying, not only personally, but also as a Christian community, to be found without spot or blemish. And then he also talks about being at peace, being diligent to be found at peace. And that's certainly peace with God, as we'll see. But it's also peace with one another. It's peace inside and outside of the body of Christ. So be diligent. The second command that we have is to count God's patience as salvation. We see that in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. And this same theme is actually in verses 3, 8, and 9. It says this, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we're counting God's patience as salvation, and that means for us, repentance, repentance in our own hearts, but also encouraging others to repentance, also spreading the gospel. And then he refers to Paul's own writing. Now, many don't know exactly where it is. Some people say it's Romans 2.4, where it talks about God's kindness that leads to repentance. But really, this theme is all over Paul, so we don't necessarily have to say, where is it, right? But it's all over Paul and Peter that God's kindness and God's patience should lead us and lead others to repentance, And just a side note, right? Peter has this side note about Paul here that is fascinating for all sorts of reasons, and it could easily be a sermon in and of itself. But first, we see a couple things. One, Peter is doing what he just encouraged us to do. He is being found at peace. Because if you know anything about Peter, we know anything about Paul. In Galatians 2, Peter was called out for his hypocrisy by Paul. And so it would be very easy for Peter not to say anything about Paul, not to even talk about him, but he's saying, no, listen to him. Right? He wrote according to the wisdom that was given him. He's living at peace with his fellow brother. He's doing what he's just asked us to do. Also, he says that there are some things in the Bible that are difficult to understand. That's an encouragement to us. Amen? And then also he says this, which is fascinating for all sorts of reasons. He says, as they do, the people that are twisting, as they do the other scriptures. Now, when the New Testament uses this word for scripture, it's referring back to the Old Testament. And Peter here is saying what Paul is writing is on par with the Old Testament. There are many people that say, well, you know, the Bible was just kind of, the New Testament was just put together, you know, it was only decided on 300 plus years later, and it was one of multiple Christianities that won out because of political reasons. No, the apostles themselves knew what they were doing. Peter has said previously in chapter 1 that men write as they're carried along by the Spirit, and now he's saying Paul was one such man. This helps us get an idea of the cohesion of the message of the New Testament. And oddly enough, as people twist the things in the New Testament, they're doing just what Peter has said not to do, right? Some things are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. So second, we, we need to count God's patience as salvation. And third, the third imperative here is to take care, to be on guard. That's verse 17. You, therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Don't be carried away by the lawless people that he's described so far, the false teachers as we saw in chapter two. Don't lose your stability. Another translation is don't fall from your firm footing. Remain standing on the rock of God's word and be rooted in that. Take care to be rooted in that. So what do we do while we're rooted? This is the fourth command, we grow. We grow. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what I love about this verse is it's not just knowing, it's not just the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, although it's not less than that, but it's also about grace, the grace of what it means to live life in Christ. Wherein lies this grace? We'll hear this in Peter's own words using a lot of the language from our passage, a lot of the same themes, but back in 1 Peter chapter one, he says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. That same idea, right? Living without blemish or spot can only be accomplished if we've come to Christ for who he is and his sacrifice on our behalf first. This is how we have peace with God. This is the grounding motive for all faithful living, that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy, as Ephesians 1 talks about it. And so if we don't understand Christ's first coming, we can't understand Christ's second coming. If we don't live in light of his first coming, we can't live in light of his second coming. We live faithfully. But we don't live faithfully to earn the kingdom, actually, because it's already been given, to us in a way. It's, it's not like the squirrels, because if the squirrels don't gather enough, they will go hungry. But it's more like what we see when many people prepare for marriage. Maybe this was your experience. Maybe you know people that it was like this. When you get engaged, when you know that marriage is on the horizon, a lot of people change their habits. They save their money. They eat cleaner. They go to the gym more. What are they doing? They're not saying, if I get up at the altar and they don't like the way I look and I haven't saved enough money, the marriage is off. That's not what they're doing. But because they know the love of this person and they want to give themselves to this person the best that they can, they're doing these things. Not to earn love, but to give of themselves. And that's the idea of the Christian life. Indeed, we are Christ's bride as the church. And this is what we're meant to be all about. That's our motive. And Peter actually shows us that too, by the two by the word beloved that appears four times in this chapter. beloved, beloved, beloved. Beloved not just of Peter, but beloved of God through Jesus. And so what does this mean, right? How do we do these things? With this grounding motive in mind, what does faithfulness look like now? As Peter says, we're diligent to find ourselves without spot or blemish. Yes, Christ paid for our sin, and by his power, now we put it to death, by the power of the Spirit. So the question is, are we putting to death our sin wherever we find it? Are we aiming to live without spot, or blemish. Also, are we diligent to be found at peace with one another? We have peace with God, and therefore let's live at peace with one another. This means peace with our spouses, with our siblings, with our children, with our parents, with our co-workers, with other church members. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you need to be reconciled to a brother, leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled, and then come back. Peace with every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. Peace with our coworkers, as I've said before. Peace with every people. But as members of this church, we've also made vows of membership. We, we vowed to study the purity and peace of the church to, to support its worship and its work. And one of the ways we do this is through service. And before COVID, we served with worship training and with setup crew and sound and ushers and, and all different things. And now those things have kind of gone away for a while, but now they're coming back. And we're not asking you to put yourselves at risk, but asking yourself, how can I put myself in service to this church wherever I am, whatever I'm doing? And this piece we ought to show throughout the world. Michael Goheen, a, a theologian, puts it this way. Since God's salvation is cosmic in scope in that it includes a renewed heavens and a new earth, the mission of God's people should be as broad as creation. Wherever you are, this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, this week, wherever you are, every day and every place, we are living faithfully in light of Christ's first and second coming. Also, we must count God's patience as salvation. And this means submission to the Lord and his word. This means repenting of our sin when we find it. But this also means sharing the gospel This also means asking how we can share the gospel with others, how we can spread the words of Jesus, not only through our actions, but also through our words. Also, we must take care, as Peter says, not to be carried away. Just like when we talked about false teaching, we need to stand on God's holy word together as a church, as a body, and take care to fight against false teaching and not be carried away in how we fight, not be carried away by their false teaching or by the aggression and by our own arrogance with which we fight it. We need to take care. And we also must grow in grace and knowledge. And God has given us means by which to do that. He's given us his word, prayer, worship, the sacraments, right? And see, what I love is that this foundation of grace has already been set, and the idea of growth is organic. If you think about a plant, there are things that you should continue to do. You should continue to water the plant and change the soil every so often. And those are mechanical in a sense, but the growth of the plant is by no means mechanical. It's organic, and it comes out of the heart. That's, that's our Christian growth. Right? There are things that God has given us to say, these things will help you to grow. And so we do them, not mechanically, but out of our love for God. So clearly, beautiful day of the Lord will come. And so we must live faithfully now. Just as a closing illustration, some of you may have heard of this, but the Ulster Revival in 1859, approximately 100,000 people came to know Christ in just 1859 alone in Ulster, Northern Ireland. But where did this start? Well, in 1857, four young men started a prayer meeting once a week to read the scriptures and pray together. But it actually goes back farther than that. In 1856, a woman named Mrs. Colville from England, decided to go on a trip to Northern Ireland to use her time and resources and, and maybe to spread the gospel while she was there. And she actually went home not thinking anything of it. And one of the people she had talked to was Mr. James McQuilkin, and he actually ended up starting this prayer group with three other men. They didn't have a single person join them until 1858, but by 1859, 100,000 people came to know the Lord. And this was a pres- these were Presbyterians, And so God was working through his people to hasten his glory in an amazing way, right? This doesn't mean if we do exactly this, this will happen. No, but we hasten in God's mysterious providence, the coming day of the Lord, by the way we live now. We hasten his glory. And so Peter ends with such a fitting benediction in this book, verse 18, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity You see, just as we glorify him now with our lives, just as one day we will glorify him, we see him face to face. We will see him face to face. And so because the day of the Lord will come, we must live faithfully now. As Christians have said for thousands of years, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. This is our hope. In the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love shown to us in Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for your spirit by which you empower us to do your will and in your mysterious providence hasten your kingdom. Lord, help us to be diligent, to count your patience as salvation, to stay on guard, but also to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.